As society becomes more and more secular, Christians are falling away from the faith. This is because many Christians don't have good answers to the objections that they face. But what if there was a podcast dedicated to answering those objections? This is what this podcast is dedicated to doing, equipping Christians to engage culture. Hi, I'm Dean Meadows, the host of Dean's Dialogue, in association with The Daily Apologist. In this episode, I'll examine the case for and the objections to the Gospel of Peter. Hey everybody, hope you're having a great day. One of the things that I have always found interesting in studying the reliability of the New Testament or Scripture canon and authority is that every so often there's a conversation about what Christianity would look like or how we would view Jesus if the lost Gospels and the lost books of the Bible were kept or added to the canon of Scripture. Now what I mean by lost Gospels is that there's a hypothesis that's out there that states that early on in Christianity there were multiple factions, and because of those multiple factions there was a religious and a political fight that took place, and that the winner of the fight got to determine what books stayed in the canon, which ones were deemed authoritative, and which ones were kept out, the ones that were marginalized, the ones that were deemed heretical. And one of the books that always comes up with regards to this topic is the Gospel of Peter. And most Christians don't know about the Gospel of Peter because it's not in the Bible. So as they're talking with people about the Gospels, the person on the other end might ask the question, well, what about the Gospel of Peter? Why was that one kicked out or why is that one not accepted? And usually the response from the Christian is that deer in the headlights look because they just don't know. So to equip you for that conversation in this podcast, what we'll do is we'll, together, we're going to answer three questions. One, what is the Gospel of Peter? Two, why do some scholars accept the Gospel of Peter? And three, what are the objections to the Gospel of Peter being a part of the New Testament? So first question, what is the Gospel of Peter? Now the Gospel of Peter is called the Gospel of Peter because it's claimed that this Gospel was penned by the Apostle Peter, who was with Jesus in his ministry, who denied him three times, was redeemed by Jesus at the end of the Gospel of John, who gave that famous sermon in Acts chapter 2. That Peter is who this uh, Gospel is attributed to. Now, it's a passion narrative. What I mean by that is is that it, it, it describes the trial, the crucifixion, and the ascension of Jesus, and it's comprised of 60 verses. And so it's generally thought to be written around A.D. 150. The earliest extant manuscripts that we have are dated by, to the 8th and 9th century. Now we know that the gospel is older than the 8th and 9th century because ancient Christian writers like Eusebius of Caesarea and Serapion, the bishop of Antioch, knew of a supposed gospel of Peter during their, their time. Now in Egypt, in the winter of 1886 to 1887, there were fragments of a gospel that were found in a codex, which were also attributed to the Gospel of Peter. And then in the 1970s and the 1980s, more fragments believed possibly to be portions of the Gospel of Peter were published. So that's an overview of the Gospel of Peter. Now, why would scholars accept the Gospel of Peter? There are some serious similarities between the Gospel of Peter and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So for instance, the Gospel of Peter, like the four Gospels that we have in our New Testament, mention in the Passion narratives the historical figure of Pilate, the mistreatment of Jesus while he's in custody, 
And he alludes to Joseph of Arimathea, the washing of Pilate's hands and his proclamation of innocence. It also mentions that there were women uh, who visited the empty tomb. And so given these multiple parallels, it seems reasonable on the surface for someone to conclude that the Gospel of Peter should have been included in the New Testament canon. Now, what kind of pushes this idea even more is that the prominent scholar John Dominic Crossan, who's a former member of the Jesus Seminar, believes that there's a whole early Christian tradition within the Gospel of Peter known as the Cross Gospel. And so what Crossan hypothesizes is that the Gospel of Peter provides the single known source for the death and resurrection narrative found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So essentially what Crossan is saying is that the Gospel of Peter uh, is earlier than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that they know about it and they use it. And so if that's the case, then the question of the Gospel of Peter's canonicity uh, should be called into question if Crossan's correct. The question is, is he correct? And so that's where we're going to move into these historical inaccuracies. And so one of these inaccuracies that's pretty blatant, I think, in the Gospel of Peter is found in the following passage, and it says, But Pilate gave over to them Petronius the centurion with soldiers to safeguard the sepulcher. Now the sepulcher is Jesus' tomb. And with these the elders and scribes came to the burial place, having rolled a large stone. All who were there together with the centurion and the soldiers placed it against the door of the burial place, and they marked it with seven wax seals. Having pitched a tent there, they safeguarded it. Now, on the surface, you're like, okay, well, what's going on here that doesn't seem to be too radical, too crazy? But in the passage, what the Gospel of Peter is describing is that Jewish elders and scribes camped out in the cemetery as part of the guard that kept watch over Jesus' tomb. And the reason that this is historically inaccurate because it drives against this type of practice for traditional Jewish customs in the first century. Now remember, in Numbers chapter 19 verse 11, it states that Jews cannot touch a dead body or they would become ritualistically unclean, ritually unclean. So to keep this law, what Jews often did is they avoided people who were seriously ill or injured, or even if they looked like they were about to die, they just wouldn't mess with them. Now, what's interesting about that is Jesus alludes to that type of practice in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, what happens? Jesus describes this guy who gets robbed, who gets beaten, who's left for dead, and the Levite and the priest, people who you would think would help this guy, pass this person on the other side of the road because they were concerned for their own, their ritual purity. And so in light of this seeming historical blunder, Dr. Craig Evans, a New Testament scholar, says this, given the Jewish view of corpse impurity, not to mention the fear of cemeteries at night, the author of a fragment is unbelievably ignorant. Who could write such a story only 20 years after the death of Jesus? And if someone did such uh, at an early time, can we really believe that the evangelist Matthew, who was surely Jewish, would make use of such a poorly informed writing? So Craig Evans, one of the foremost scholars on New Testament history, says, hey, the big blunder in the Gospel of Peter is this, this 
idea that Jews would camp out in a cemetery to guard a dead body when, in fact, that's something they didn't even get near dead bodies for people who looked like they were about to die because they didn't want to be impure. So due to this historical inaccuracy, it's most likely that the author of the Gospel of Peter is far removed from the time of the events surrounding Jesus' death and burial. So it's also reasonable to conclude why some people would say, based upon this historical blunder, it shouldn't be in the canon uh, because it's inauthentic. The second piece to this puzzle is legendary embellishment. And after reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, along with the Gospel of Peter, it's clear to me that the Gospel of Peter contains a lot of embellishment. And here's a passage that serves as, as an example. When therefore those soldiers, soldiers saw it, they awakened the centurion and the elders, for they too uh, had been keeping guard. And as they declared what things they had seen, again, they saw three men come forth from the tomb, and two of them supporting one and a cross following them, and the two the heads reached up into heaven. But the head of him who was led by them overpassed the heavens. And they heard a voice from the heaven saying, Thou hast preached to them that sleep. And a response was heard from the cross, Yea. Now, notice the Gospel of Peter describes these angels' heads reaching up to heaven, a talking cross, and that Jesus' head uh, stretched past the heavens. Now, one might ask the question, well, why isn't something like Matthew an embellishment of Mark? Well, Matthew isn't inconsistent with anything in Mark the way that Peter is inconsistent with all four Gospels. And it's also one thing to believe in a resurrection where all the canonical Gospels speak of a real human being brought back to life as a real human, albeit, you know, hey, glorified. It's another thing to have someone who is so tall that his head reaches through the clouds. And so Peter is obviously based on a desire to glorify Jesus in such a way that his real humanity is completely obliterated. And, and even notice the difference in the angels. Angels in Scripture are typically portrayed as men who appear on earth, not being those whose heads reach into the clouds. So assuming that we're talking about, you know, once again, Mark's shorter ending, uh, Mark's shorter ending can hardly be seen to be legendary because it doesn't even narrate a resurrection appearance. And even in Matthew, as Matthew uh, records the resurrection narrative, I don't think you could argue that it's being invented as legend uh, in order to fulfill you know, what's not there at Mark's ending, because what you have there in Matthew's ending is that there were some people who doubted this would be seen as potentially embarrassing material. And, and none of these features are, are seen in the Gospel of Peter, whether that's the embellishment or the things that would be considered historical, like people doubting, like there not being a resurrection appearance in the short ending of, of Mark. So, you know, in considering what we sh what should be taken as most likely to be historical, what historians often seek, and this is the purpose for outlining that previous section, is that when historians want to know what's most likely historical, they always defer to the most primitive account. So in seeking to identify the most primitive account, historians look for 
which ones contain the most type of uh, restraints on embellishment. I don't think you could make the case that the Gospel of Peter is the most primitive account of the Passion narrative in comparison to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So in this case, when we compare Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to Peter, Peter just reeks of embellishment. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are restrained. So in conclusion, while Crossan and others might want to say that the Gospel of Peter is earlier than the Synoptics, it, it just seems that in light of the evidence, it's more prudent to conclude that this is a later apocryphal, also known as fake writing, and for this reason the Gospel of Peter should be excluded from the New Testament canon and should not be seen as canonical, which is in line with also with early church history. The bishop uh, Serapion of Antioch says essentially, you know, this is a fake, it's a bad gospel, we should reject it, and Jerome does the same thing as well in his writings on the gospel of Peter. So hopefully that helps you in your conversations with people about the Gospel of Peter. In our next episode, what we're going to look at is the Gospel of Thomas. And once again, as we end the show, please like us and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You know, you can always check out uh, our blogs at www.thedailyapologist.com. Thank you once again for listening. Thank you for supporting uh, Dean's Dialogue. Thank you for supporting CultureCast. Thank you for supporting the Apologetics Report podcast. And just in general, thank you for everything that you guys do. We do this because we want to equip Christians to engage culture, and certainly we couldn't do what we do without you all. So thank you so much. This is Dean Meadows signing off for Dean's Dialogue. And remember, equip yourself to engage culture.